Released on Sunday, November 23rd, 2014, This Agile Life, Episode 67, Death by Charts. Our sponsor tonight is CodeShip. CodeShip is continuous delivery made simple. Try CodeShip for free. Setup only takes three minutes at CodeShip.io. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Lee McCauley. Hey, John. How's it going? Feels like it's been forever. Yeah, it does feel like forever, even though it's probably only been maybe a few weeks or something, right, Lee? Yeah. Last week, I had to do the solo mission because I I blew it when we were supposed to record the first time, and uh, I wanted to get something out to all of our listeners, so I did the stand-up thing, and now we're back together again. Yay! With us Happy also, family. Yeah. With us also, Jason Tice, the Agile Factor. Yeah, I'm gonna get my Janet Jackson out, and we're gonna sing. We're gonna we're gonna dance along to together again. I thought you I thought you were gonna go with We Are Family. Oh, we could do it all. <laughs> Are we having a wedding here? It's like a you know all the songs they play at a wedding. So yeah, we're all back together here. So I'd love to hear some some thoughts about. Um, I I listened to to John's discussion about about stand ups. Actually, that was really good. It was interesting. So, but it was lots of John talking. So. Sometime we should do a replay of that because I know I had a few things to say. I can only imagine what some of our, our co-hosts who are not here tonight today, uh, uh, in particular Amos. Um, R- think- R- Jason, really, you had something to say. Oh, I had I had lots to say. It was all, all the place, but I'm sure a- Amos is Surprise. the person who I think would Amos I think would have probably had the most uh, kind of counters to say that maybe we don't need to have a stand up because we should be working, you know, as a close knit team and have transparency through a, a, a Kanban board and interesting. So we'll have to rehash that as a group sometime. I look forward to doing that. And I also, Lee, am surprised that Jason had something to say. I love the stand-up. I was going to stand-up's like, it's time to do some aerobics. You know, we should get up and work out. Okay. Not a stand-up, not a, not a yoga up. Not a workout. Up. I yeah. I did one once, John. Remember you talking about don't talk too long, stand up. Here's a free one, a bonus if you missed if if you missed John's discussions. If bonus you want if you want to make people be brief in the stand up, you know you have to. I know, John. Remember you talked about the pain factor. You have to increase the pain factor. So make people stand on one leg when they're talking, so that the balance. And again, they'll make people be very concise and to the point. I prefer a sun salutation. Our that, uh, our, our warrior one. Warrior one, okay, or anything, or the balance disc. You bring that in, so but it's fun. And if you haven't done it, that actually will get that actually will promote blood flow. It's going to wake you up. So um, yeah, check it out. Okay, so well we'll have to. Get- any, I'm sorry. Has anybody ever tried the 24 seven thing that they do at uh, at the Ignoble Awards, where you they have uh, these eminent scientists, Nobel Prize winners, they have to explain their research in 24 seconds and then sum it up in seven words. I like that idea. That, I think that would be fun. That, that's like how I'll share. That's how I challenge teams to write working agreements where they can write their working agreements in five plus or minus two words. 
And ideally, they have no more than seven of them. The problem with that, Lee, is it sounds like a scientist like that would have to... It's like the Mark Twain thing where he said, you know, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. That sort of thing where <laughs> right. the scientist has to work really hard to, to condense that all down to 24 seconds worth of message that they can then summarize in seven words. And that'd take a long time to, to do that. It, it, it would, but it's fun. Okay, let, let's talk a little bit about code coverage tonight. And I think we've talked some about test coverage, code coverage in the past. And uh, Jason, I think, specifically has helped us with coming up with some of the talking points around this. And he even describes it as the holy practice of measuring code coverage. Yes, it is potentially sacred. So it, Does that mean it have holes in it? Well, it might. Or it it's, might. you're saying sacred. Well, I put it this way. I want to start with a simple question for both of you. Okay. And we've talked about this a little bit. I know I talk a lot about metrics. I personally feel there is value in having some data about the, the comprehensiveness of your test suite. So the simple question I'd like to start with is, if we don't measure code coverage, which many teams do not, how do you know if you're writing enough tests? So I know what my measure is. My measure is, do I feel comfortable letting anybody else on the team edit the code that I have written? or I have written with a pair. Um, if the answer is yes, I'm perfectly comfortable because I've, I feel that I have sufficient tests around all of that and, uh, and they'll be able to understand my code and then be able to make it better with, with their own pieces and that'll be testable, then I'm good with it. So I'm going to describe that, Lee. That's a gut. That's not a, that's not a specific quantitative value. That's just you kind of know yourself. Yep. Okay. You're saying, Lee, you, just so I understand, you're saying if you feel that other people, you'd let other people look at the code, work with the code, then that's, that's your level of comfort. And I feel that I've covered it so that, uh, A, there is nothing that they couldn't randomly go in and remove a line of my code and all the tests still pass. Okay. Here's, here's my, here's the way I think about it. If we've always practiced, test-driven development through the life cycle of building the product, I think we've written enough tests. Stick that in your hat and smoke it. So Agile okay. factor. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I, so just saw him, I, saw, I just saw him grab the microphone and drop it. Well, we're done. Okay, podcast over. We're done. Let's do picks now. <laughs> uh, well, let me clarify, okay, because something that I've kind of bumped into recently is, John, can you explain a little bit more when you say test-driven development what you mean? Is that truly test-first, test-driven, write tests sometime? I mean, what do you mean when you say that? Because I have learned, and those of us out there, there is a wide variation in what the exact practice of TDD is. Well, you're, you're certainly right about that. I mean, I get that question quite frequently, people asking to differentiate between test-first versus test-driven uh, versus unit testing. And to me, test-driven means that I've always written the code in a way where I start it with a meaningful test that when run was read and I go through the red green refactor cycle and I use 
the fact that I have a broken test to drive my implementation of real code that then is the final product of what it is I'm building for my story, for my feature, for the system. That to me is test-driven. Test first, I think the differentiation there is that you do write a test, but that that you, you don't always have you don't always work where it's the test driving the implementation. You might just write a test, then write a bunch of code, you know. Um, yeah, and then, and then go back and yeah, I think that's the clear thing to call it. So, John, you're saying by your definition, you would do your your initial statement, the idea of red green refactor. You know, I I pull a card to start working on a story. The first thing I do is I go to my test tree, and I you know I, I go to a, a test case class. I write a test, I run it, I see the red bar, then I go and I write the smallest piece of code to make the bar green, then I go back and I write a new test and I make the I make the test fail and I do that back and forth. That's right and I never write a piece of production code that was not directly correlated to a broken to a red test first. Okay. That that to me is TDD, that's test driven development. So I think, okay, so I think if you're doing that, you're, um, if you're doing that, you win the internet. Well, yeah, I think, I think if you're doing that, you, um, you will have test coverage, but so let, let's, or would we safe to say if you are practicing test driven development, as John has described it, you're pretty rest assured to have good code coverage. Oh yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. So agreement there. And I, I agree also. What if you're not? So let's say we're do we we have a team where maybe people they don't know red green refactor they're just learning how to write unit tests so they're doing more of what you call John test first. So if that's the case, how do, how do you know if you're writing enough tests? Or even just they may maybe they're just doing unit testing, uh, where you know they they are writing some tests, they're writing code, and then they're going back and they're covering their code with some tests to say, I, you know, I wrote some code, so I should write some unit tests to prove that that, that test is, is working. And they won't, they won't have sufficient evidence of the fact that all of their code is, is covered in tests. But I want to point something out to you, Jason, because 10 years ago or so, I was in a situation where a company that I was working in, and you'll like this, maybe, within the context of at least our conversation, the company I was working in was mandating an 80% level of code coverage. And we had this we had this wall of shame, was what some people called it, because every week the dev manager, he would update the wall of shame with every project's code coverage. He would go out there and he would he would reprint out the metrics and he would stick them up on this wall. So every and it was it was in like the main thoroughfare to go to the bathroom, go to leave, go to it was right by where the coffee machines were. It was it was yeah, it was tra- it was great. It was it drew everyone's focus to who wasn't following the rules. And you know what the easiest thing to do was? Assert not null. Well, that's a that's a tooling problem because that's cheating, right? Well, I agree that's cheating. So uh, yeah, so I'm I'm struggling because I'm I'm trying to get us to give some advice here. Where again, if you're doing TDD as John described it, you could assume if you have that discipline to do red green refactor, you'll have sufficient test coverage. If you're not doing that, aside from going to 
a fixed, you know, a, a quantitative limit or a quantitative minimum number of tests, as John's describing. Is there any other way to figure out if you're having if you're writing enough tests? Let's try to break this down into into something that it's actually measurable, um, which is what I think uh, Jason's trying to get to. Um, so one one way that's kind of a soft measure, but it still might get at this uh, indirectly. It's what's the confidence level of your code um, that it's not going to break. So Lee, how do you, how would you measure that? Because maybe you are a developer that has more experience than someone who maybe is has less experience and they're just starting out and they think their code's great and so they're like yeah i don't need to test this i think it's great i i know it does the right thing i know it's going to work and so they don't test it maybe you've had experiences in your career that have taught you otherwise how do you come to consensus about that on a team um that's a good question i mean i think that partially you have to go with how many bugs do you find? So that's what some teams do, right? Is they just keep track of bugs and they try to, uh, to trace it back to uh, a particular story. Nowadays, you can, you can pop up something in your IDE that, that gives you annotations of when that line of code was written, right? Okay. Um, so, I mean, are we, are we playing the, are we looking at like, oh, we wrote that code at five o'clock. We were checked out. I mean, is that the type of thought process? So we would use that kind of data? I'm, I'm, I'm confused. Um, I, I wouldn't say that. I was. I would say you could trace that back to a particular story. And what code were you were you writing at that time? What was the story? What was the issues? And then you could you could trace that back to see what was the root cause as to why it wasn't covered. Um, maybe it's because I was lazy, uh, or maybe it was something uh, something else. Maybe the manager came in and said, "Don't test that. Just get it running. I, I need that pushed." I, I don't know. Okay. So, th- so the other one I'll just ask then is it's this idea of saying that what you're describing, Lee, I mean, that's a sane idea, but it's reactive. It's saying that we had a bug escape. So we had an escaped defect. We can then go in and investigate what happened and we can learn from that. This One of the ways I see code coverage being used is kind of like John described at the wall of shame. We want to set a minimum amount of testing in a proactive manner. And we have a hypothesis that if we attain that level of testing, our software will have higher quality. Do you actually think that the wall of shame is a good idea, Jason? Well, I kind of want to get into that. And and I, and because I, I know people who have had a, like a job is, I mean, the, the term I've heard used multiple times is like they're an application development manager. So they're the person that's responsible for how applications are built in an organization. And they, they're, they're kind of managing teams or projects, whatever. They, they have a responsibility to the business to guide those teams to manage risk and to write good software that doesn't, that has less risk. And at that point, this idea of saying, I want all of my teams to write tests. You have to have a certain amount of test coverage, you know, 80% or higher, you know, because maybe you don't test certain things like getters and setters. Cause obviously if you run instrumentation and you haven't tested those, it's going to lower your metrics. So there's some, you know, there's some allowable margin of a gap. But uh, to manage risk, I want to see test coverage. What's wrong with that approach? It, to many people, and I know many people have done this, they've done that, and it has helped them. It's been, one, it's been a one practice that has helped teams write better software. As long as there's not a, a, a number. Sorry, John. As long as there's not a number that, uh, that you have to hit. If there's, if there's a, um, 
here's our baseline and we're going to try to improve until we hit some plateau we think is essentially 100% covered, even if the number doesn't read 100%. Yeah, I I agree with you, Lee. I want to say something a little bit more about a number out there. But first, I want to mention that I think that, and Jason, this is not this is not a knock on you. So I want I want to be clear about that because sometimes I think you've, you you believe that I take pot shots at you and this is not directed at you. No, you are not Amos. That's Amos all the time, but go for it. I think that what you're describing is the MBA approach to code coverage management. <laughs> I wish you could all see uh, Jason's face. Which speaking of that on Twitter, speaking of Jason's face, we should we should share your your twit your recent Twitter pic at the at the lean coffee. With, it was with lean everyone. combine. It was my Christmas how to have a lean holiday. Anyways, yeah. So okay. back back on this topic, I call that the MBA approach to code coverage. But I want to say about the number, and I've had this I've had this conversation with our our mutual friend Brian Button before because he's against the number as well and talks about how you can easily cheat and game the number and do the assert not null on the class and get 100% code coverage on it. Uh, having a number, I'm not 100% against because I think it does initially drive some behavior and it gets people into the practice of covering their covering their code with tests, especially in a situation where your 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 group, your team or department are young in the practice of using test-first development and or test-driven development and or unit testing, it at least gives them an incentive and a target to shoot for. And I think that when we had the wall of shame, I was supportive of the wall of shame because we were all in the very low teens and 20s and 30 percentage with code coverage because we were all very young in our test-driven development practice. So, Meaning, it, meaning John, you were in the compliant area or you were in the non-compliant area? We were very non-compliant. Oh, so you'd like to be in an outcast. And so this was, it was, a, it was across the board. There was a lot of non-compliance across the board. It was not simply my team. It was many of the projects. And so it was driving the projects and the teams to attain a certain base level of code coverage from which then you could maintain and grow and keep going with uh, to, to, ma- to help ensure a higher level of quality of your coding. So in, under those circumstances and probably only under those circumstances, would I be supportive of having a code coverage number? Well, John, I want to take this a different way here because I want to say that, you know, okay. as we're talking about this application development manager, and we're talking about the wall of shame and, and even some of the tactics that that uh, quantitative metrics-driven MBAs love to impose in organizations, the wall of shame was an opportunity missed. Because what I think could have been done, and I think there's a way that if you are an application development manager, you could do this, is to say, let's not just measure code coverage, but let's go back to the first thing Lee said today, which was this idea of saying, I want to have enough confidence in my code. So what if we had a, a practice where like, say, once a month, we as a as a group of teams writing software uh, for this uh, this co- this organization, we get together and we spy on each other, and we literally at random pick a sample of recently committed code from another team's repo, and we go over the code and the tests, and as kind of like I'd say it like a like an auditor, we assess the quality of the testing to 
add a little bit more rigor around seeing how well the, the, the team's test practices are, but that's being done by someone outside the team. Okay, so I'm afraid of one thing. I'm afraid of the word spy. Well, okay. So, I mean, think of that as a, okay, think of it as like a coach or like a consultant that would come in and audit your code and effectively be there to kind of maybe say, you know, how you're doing enough. And if, and again, they're there to help. So they're not there to say, fail, you didn't test enough. They're just say, hey, you know, have you thought about this? Maybe you should do this differently. And, and over time, they would be promoting good practices versus simply trying to hit a number. I think that's an interesting topic, but how how are you going to how are you going to do that? Well, like I said, I think this would be if you would be in an organization where everyone's obviously everyone's working together, so everyone can look at everyone else's code. But we would say, you know, hey Lee, this afternoon we want you to go over and maybe kind of I, I think of it as like a code review to pull a story, go in the repo, find the find the find the test for that story, then find the code was changed and make a simple assertion. Do you think it was tested enough? And if, if yes, you know, give them a thumbs up and if not, maybe give them some constructive feedback. What about using code reviews and a, a code review, uh, part, you know, implementing, what about implementing a code review process that does this for you rather than well, stealing someone from like another area or another project or another team to do that work for you? Well, I guess I'm going to this this idea of having a a standard, like a, a metric. That would be this idea of having standard practice across a group of teams. Like you said, the wall of shame. I want everyone to write so many, so much, uh, have so much test coverage for all their applications. So this is saying that yes, the team should have their own policy and their own code review to ensure they're writing good tests. But let's double check that with someone from outside the team. Because that's kind of what the wall of shame was doing, John. It was a way that the team was doing its own testing, but then the manager wanted to do his double check. So he said, I'm going to throw it up on the wall to promote a little bit of transparency and accountability. What do you think about that, Lee? Um, I don't know. It's, it seems like it's not practical uh, simply because it's someone that doesn't know the code trying to come in and look at somebody else's code. It's going to take them a while just to figure out what the code was intending to do. And then, and then maybe they can assess whether the test coverage is is complete or not. Um, I I just think it would it's not efficient. It's not lean, Jason. But but it does ensure we do quality. I, again, this is a I'm hard sure. problem. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if somebody coming out from outside that doesn't really know the, the the code and what it was written for without a lot of work can really assess it well. Or what you're going to happen? Even what's going to happen is some some people may do a good job with it, but others, it's just that's not my primary job. I'm just going to skim through it, and I'm not really going to do that check well. Well, or the other thing that I'll say, you know, kind of be the devil's advocate is that in the spirit of not being lean, if a team has invested time to come with their own kind of their own understanding of what an appropriate amount of testing is, and then this outsider comes in, that outsider has to basically come up to speed on whatever the appropriate level of of testing the team has decided is is good. So they could immediately say, oh, my goodness, you didn't test everything. Fail. You're horrible, you know, and, you know, put you up on the wall of shame. So. I think that might work in a few scenarios I've seen, but I think it's probably more often than not lead to your point. It will be hard to implement. You're, you're kind of selling me on that here. So do you have, do you, either of you guys have any sort of other suggestions for how to go about this? 
what is the what ultimately what is the goal that we're striving for? What we're striving for is quality well, so, code, okay. right? Well, the quality code. So, the, but so the real goal that this is a real life job for some people is I'm that application development manager. I'm responsible for managing a staff of a bunch of developers who are writing applications for my business. And I, as the manager, need to go back to the business and do something to demonstrate what I'm doing to ensure code is being tested. What do I do? Well, let's let's take a step even further back than that, which I think is where John wanted to go with this. Correct me if I'm wrong, John, but sure. um, how do we how do we assure that we've got quality code? I like I like for starters, I'm, I'm OK. Like I said, I'm OK with having a number out there for a period of time. But there's some other things you can do. How, how do you guys feel about things like static code analysis? Checking for cyclomatic complexity and um, depth of object hierarchies and some of those things. Notice how John has asked the question, so Lee, you and I will respond, then he will pounce on us. I, no, no, no. <laughs> so, I so promise at, you that I will so not pounce on you. As I have been singled out as the MBA in the room who loves metrics and data and uses them to do good things, any type of a quantitative measure can be used for value. And so this idea of having this source of what I'm going to say, non-subjective, well, it's subjective, but it's standardized data. So I'm doing standard uh, cyclomatic complexity analysis across all my code. And then I look at the baseline scores. That's valuable information to kind of see what's going on. So John, I like that practice. I recommend that practice, but I know I have colleagues that right now, if they're listening to this Agile Life driving down the road, they are planning to beat me up in the parking lot at work tomorrow. So it's just data and it's just math. I mean, are, are people afraid of data? Are people afraid of math? I don't know. And again, I've seen I've seen direct correlations in, in increased cyclomatic complexity as a function of the maturity of the team. So if it's a team of a bunch of new developers, they start writing code and it gets all convoluted and it's the it's it's not refactored and their score goes up and it's amazing. You see a team of more seasoned developers, their score is lower. That's a real interesting discussion to say, hey, if you're at a company, you need to balance those teams out because, you know, if you put more of the seasoned people on the team with the, the, the newer developers, over time, they'll gel on the wall right, and they'll learn how to write better software. So I think that's valuable. I want to hear what Lee has to say because I don't know where you stand on this. We, we've never talked about this. So for me, no, there's never such a thing as bad data. There are bad uses of data and there are consequences for gathering the data. And those are the things that you have to factor into whether you uh, are going to use or gather the data or not. Um, so I think stuff like uh, uh, like the complexity measures actually can be really useful for a team if they know what they're looking at. Um, and it's stuff that they that you can gather essentially automatically, and so it doesn't cost the team anything to gather it. Yeah, and this is one thing I want to draw out because keep in mind what God said this was talking about a person many times in an organization who has a job to look across teams. So again, sometimes if you say, okay, I'm a single team, why measure the cyclomatic complexity of my code? It doesn't really matter. If you're in an environment where you have multiple teams, and again, the scenario I described that I've seen multiple times in my career, which is where you identify teams that the, 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 the data will show you, you have teams that are writing better software, you can adjust staff to promote learning and it's great. Uh, so if you're thinking across teams, this data may provide more value. Yeah, I've read studies and I, I was trying to Google for one while we're podcasting and that's a really horrible idea. So I'm just going to go off the cuff with it. But 
I don't know what the the number was, but the the gist of it is that, of course, as you can imagine, the higher the cyclomatic complexity of code, the more bugs that you have, and that there's a direct correlation between those two. So for me, if you put me into the shoes of the development manager, I think one of the steps that I would take is to take the simple uh, step of having all of the teams implement the execution of the the collection of metrics via like a Jenkins sort of thing where it it happens it's a no touch thing back to Lee's point it has to be it has to be easy on the team this shouldn't be an arduous thing for them and at least start collecting data let the let the data come in and, and while you're in there, John, this is where, again, I would go ahead and I would also instrument your build to measure test coverage at that point. I don't think you need to have a number, a hard number, but I think, again, it's another data point that drives a conversation. Right. Go ahead and get all the data you can. Take a look at some of that data, correlate that back to where you have problems within your organization, and then target those areas for improvements. But take the data back to the teams present it to them and ask them what do they think that they would like to do to try and improve the situation that they're in. And you may get some very surprising answers from them. And I think a good manager will be able to correctly use that data uh, that is not detrimental to the team. It's only when you have a bad manager that only wants to set, uh, set policy based on numbers and not on uh, on what those numbers mean. So, so let's take that. I guess let's take that a step further to say and say if if you're on a team, uh, how do you decide then? So, suppose you're on that team and you've got one person, kind of like we started out with, like John Lee, that want to test a lot because they want to do TDD. Then you got someone on the team who doesn't know how to do TDD or doesn't want to do TDD or doesn't think it provides value, and they just want to do some simple, you know, simple, uh, you know, test first development. How does a team come to a consensus about how much to test and how to test other than having turnaround meetings that go on for two hours and no one's working on code because we're, de- we're debating how to test it? I honestly don't know, Jason, because to me, it's, it's almost a personal thing, at least because no matter what the team decides, I know for my personal well-being and my personal um, feeling and confidence for my code, I'm going to have a certain level. Um, now it's possible that the team could drive me to a higher level, uh, maybe, but I have a pretty high standard as it is. But but let's say I didn't, so I could definitely see a team driving me to a higher standard, but I can't see a team driving me to a lower standard. The problem I have answering this question, Jason, is that I'm so far removed from the days of developing code without test driving it and without unit testing is I forget what that's like. But if I try and put myself back into those shoes, what I can, what I come up with is that it's scary for teams to try and take on something new like that. Imagine asking a team to say you're, 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 you've been doing Java and now to improve your code quality, we now want you to start writing everything in Scala. You know nothing about Scala, just like you know nothing about unit testing. You know nothing about test-driven development. Uh, and somebody is telling you to do a thing that you, you don't know about. So you've got to give people coaching, training, and mentoring to make sure that they can take 
the requests are they can take this opportunity for improvement and really do it without making the situation worse because the last thing that I would want to try and do when I'm in a bad situation is try and change horses, right? Try and change from not writing tests to writing tests because I don't know how to do that or change from writing the code in Java to writing it in Scala. Yeah, yeah, I think, John, you're on to it because, I mean, this is where, the, in my opinion, we've hit the, what I call the cycle because this is where the team maybe at that point struggles to figure out how do we get everyone on the same page about writing tests, especially if you're on a team where maybe people have experience and some people don't have experience. So, John, what you reckon is, again, best case. So people should go get training, get mentoring. We all know that's not always an option, unfortunately. So then the team thrashes and some people write tests, some people don't write tests. There you have a two-hour turnaround about deciding what to do. Eventually, management, I think, takes notice of that. And then to go full circle, I think that's when you get the policy set that everyone should have 80% test coverage. Well, it's, it's this app dev manager's job to help the teams come up with ways where they can improve in a realistic fashion and not just walk in there and belly up to their bar and say, you guys suck. You need to write more tests. See ya. Hey guys, here's an idea. Why not check out our sponsor, CodeShip? CodeShip is so simple to use. You can get your project set up and building on CodeShip in as little as three minutes. If you're not using CodeShip, then you're spending more time on continuous delivery than necessary. Our good friends at CodeShip won't even ask you for a credit card to get you started. I know, I've done it. What are you waiting for? Maybe you're worried that you'll run into a problem or you'll have trouble getting started. Fear not. If you need help getting started, you'll find all the help you need on the CodeShip blog at blog.codeship.io. Plus, their blog has tons of interesting and helpful posts and videos to help you elevate your continuous delivery. If all else fails, the good people at CodeShip are easy to reach and they are always happy to help. Few things in life are easy. But this is one of them. Let CodeShip make continuous delivery simple for you. Go and visit codeship.io slash thisagilelife and use the offer code thisagilelife when you sign up and you'll receive a 20% discount for three months on any paid plan. Thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring This Agile Life. ThisAgileLife.com well, okay, that's what we're that's what the app dev manager's job should be, John, just to just to be clear. And in, in some instances it is, but as you were you were commenting about your wall of shame, sometimes it isn't. It wasn't my wall of shame. Well, you you were a victim of it, it sounds like. So um So Lee, what do you think? I mean, this is to me, this is a tough issue. It's and it's unfortunate that a lot of times, you know, people have different experiences i mean these days you got people popping jobs all over the place since the economy is actually doing pretty good especially for tech jobs and so hey i worked i used to work at a shop where we did everything just like john described it earlier it was awesome and you're the only person on the team that says that that knows how to do that what do you do well first off you can't uh it has to be a soft sell in my opinion uh you can't take somebody that um has been uh, you can't throw somebody into the water, into the deep end, and and actually expect them to swim um, with any proficiency. 
it seems to me that you have to say, okay, what, what's the next step that I can take you to? What is, how about if, uh, you name things, parts of your code that, uh, you think really should be tested better than they are. Just give me a few of them. Don't, no, let's not say code cover the whole thing. Just give me some of those. Let's go back then and pull out that original code and we'll get, we're going to do that piece TDD. Or maybe you just start by covering it with, with tests if they've never done unit tests before. So before we go, let me ask one question. So let's say here, coach me. I'll, I'll be like, John, I'll be the bad developer here who doesn't write tests. I've never tested Lee. You showed up to work with me. Okay. Did you just say, did you just say you're going to be me, the bad developer who yeah, doesn't I'm a, write tests? No, I'm going to be, I'm the bad developer. <laughs> oh. I went from being a crazy architect. Now I'm a bad developer. Okay. okay. So, I don't do this. I, my code is perfect. I don't need to write any tests. Okay. I don't, I've heard about this TD thing, but you know, I sit down, I think about it. I, maybe I sketch out a design and then I just nail it. And so I don't need to do any of this stuff. And then Lee, you show up. What happens? Well, how's this going to go? Well, uh, if, if you are honestly, if you're just completely against the whole idea, I'm not going to convert you. I'm going to do my stuff. If you, if you have to be sitting beside me, then I'm going to write my tests. You can watch. I'll even, I'll even try to get you to, to help out. You know, you know make, make that test pass that I just wrote. Or you know, maybe if I can get them to, to write a test there just because, hey, otherwise they're going to be bored, then let's do it that way. But I'm not going to make you write tests. So, but how does that work then? So, because to me, because, that's... That's where I guess I could see the, the, the wall of shame comes in. It's like, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm now the leader. I'm the manager. I have, I have went to the Agile conference. I heard about this test-driven development, and I think it's great. I now want all my people, regardless of what their background is, I want everyone to do it, so I'm going to impose a, a policy, a standard, and everyone must comply with it. Well, you changed, you changed the rules of the game there. That's back to the idiotic MBA manager approach to bullshit <laughs> mba manager approach to bullshit that's that's exactly what that is because okay, there's John, John, that is that's ubiquitous so what are we going to do about it tell me what we're going to do somebody is arbitrarily making things up because they went to a conference right i mean i know it happens every day yeah, John, you go to conferences you do that just like i do so i don't make things up as well, a no, result th of having gone to the conference no no it's but, but it's what people when they go to a conference what they take out of it so I, I know but you can't fix you can't ask lee and i to fix stupid people because there are some people that are just they're never going to they're never going to get past the fact that they can't force people to do things the right way by by just inventing these bars and these code metrics collection systems and reporting i mean they they're going to make the situation worse before they ever get anywhere near close to making it better by just walking in and saying i went to the tdd conference bang we're having an 80% code coverage metric you guys don't get to have any sort of a say in this i'm just telling you go do it i mean we can't fix that from we can't fix that okay well i mean and i think what you're saying john there is a little bit of time in that because i think sometimes there's a discussion like hey let's try this and then when when leadership may perceive there's value then they decide to set a standard um that's common progression actually so i i actually 
as I'm role playing here, I do agree that that is you you can't force people to change like that. So, and at the same time, I think there is an opportunity for the leadership for leadership to employ some different tactics. Well, that's for sure. So, so any ideas on what some of those could be before I share mine? Well, uh, what I'm saying is, if if the if you're going to have so my suggestions to the application development managers that are out there is don't make wide sweeping changes without consultation of your teams. Go to the teams that have an issue because maybe not 100% of your teams are having a problem, right? So is it fair to go into those teams and tell them, change everything you're doing because we're changing it across the board. You have to change tomorrow. Or is it a better idea to sit down and identify projects and teams that are experiencing some trouble and then go spend some time with those teams to better understand what is it the, what are the problems that they're facing? Maybe they're having problems because they've had a lot of turnover on the team. Maybe they are having problems because they have personality issues within the team. It could have nothing at all to do with technology. It could have nothing at all to do with the method in which they are developing software. It could have it could be all kinds of external issues. You know, maybe somebody on that team is very difficult to work with and is causing a lot of strife. So what is, what's the saying, Lee? Get out to the Gemba. Go see what the hell is going on before you start passing down dogma and doctrine to people to execute. So, so I have to say that I think the right way to do this from the, from the application development manager's perspective is to identify those people um, that are doing it the right way and reorganize into a team that is going to, uh, assuming you've got enough people that are doing it right, that you can get 50% of a small team uh, made up of those people and the other 50% made up of somebody you think is trainable uh, and put them together for a year or however long you can. Yeah, so build a learning team or build a learning environment. Exactly. You don't have to tell them that's what you're doing, but it'll happen. And then you split that team and and you keep doing that until you have a culture. It may take five, ten years, but that's I think that's the way you, you have to go about it. Well, I have, I have a more fundamental idea, though, that's actually because Lee, your idea, I think, is great. Um, but at the same time, sometimes that's also not feasible because it requires moving people around and all that stuff. And or as you mentioned, maybe you don't maybe you don't have enough mix to hit critical mass. But the idea I have is it goes kind of back to what John said. And, and I'd, I'd actually say you could kind of gamify it with some real simple techniques to say, if you're the application development manager, you need to go out and you need to employ a little bit of servant leadership and say, I'm going to go to my team and I'm going to ask them to, to do the five whys with me. And the application development manager should be transparent and say, hey, we need to do something to, we need to write software where we're doing things to reduce risk or write better quality software, however you want to say it. So I want you guys as a team, to ask me why. And the application development manager needs to be transparent and honest with the team as to why. And so play the five whys. But then I think there's an opportunity for the application development manager to take that a step further and then go back to the team and ask them, you know, let's call it a new game. Let's call it the five hows. So after the application development manager says why the team needs to write, you know, software to, to reduce risk, ask the team how they think they should do it. 
and then use that to kind of go forward and decide what to do and realize it may be different from team to team because the people on the teams are different. But I think that's a better way. And again, it's, it's coming down off the ivory tower and it's going out to what John said and working with the people. This week's hottest picks. All right, Lee, what's your pick for the show today? Well, I have two picks that dir- that directly relate to test-driven development. Uh, there is a great website uh, that's entitled Introduction to Test-Driven Development um, by Scott Wambler, or maybe it's Scott W. Ambler. I'm not sure. All I know is his Twitter handle, at Scott Wambler. It's Scott uh, W. Ambler. Thank you. You're welcome. Obviously, you know this guy personally. Oh, uh, yeah, we're good buddies. We don't... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a it's a really good uh, uh, introduction to what TDD is and has a lot of uh, other resources there. Um, the other one that I thought was really good, and it's more of a, a news and um, uh, resources kind of a site, is testdriven.com. So both of those are really good uh sources if you want to learn more about test driven development and if you want some some really useful data and useful resources for uh for doing it on a day-to-day basis thanks lee jason what's your pick for the episode oh so i got two tonight um first and foremost uh our discussion tonight was inspired by a sticky minds blog post entitled is code coverage a silver bullet we, I think tonight, pretty much agreed with some of the points in that um, in that article, saying there's some value, but there's also it's not the only thing out there. So check it out. We'll put the uh, the link to the article in the show notes. And the other thing that I'm going to do for the holidays this year in 2015 is I'm going to pick. I'm going to have a list of games. So every episode, I'm going to give, find us a different uh, fun game that will help your team improve. So to get things started, the game I want to feature this week is a game uh, developed by Dr. Lori Williams. It's called Protection Poker. And so it's a way to kind of like you play planning poker to assess um, complexity. This is a way to take a story and assess the risk or the security threats related to that story and decide if it's appropriate. So uh, we'll put the link to the game materials that you can download um, online and uh, you guys can play it and let us know what you think of it. It's it's a lot of fun. You can also do the the version of that that uh, involves taking off clothes. Yes, and I will only that's say stri- that's strip poker. That's strip oh, poker. Oh, that's oh, sorry, I get those confused. It, <laughs> and, it makes for, and as it makes talking, for really weird times. And as we're talking about embarrassing Twitter pictures and stuff, if we go back and do an audio isolation of the last of the end of Lee's picks, he said do it every day. So I don't know what he's doing every day, but whatever. Okay, Jason, I'm not I'm not sure what that was. What, what was what was it that he said? He said. Yeah, it was about doing it all the time or something. It's Lee, Lee's on just, a day-to-day basis. Yeah, all the time. It's like Lee. Ugh. I'm just gonna go play my agile games. That's it. Hey, Jason, for protection poker, what would you would you do this only in situations where you have concerns about a security risk, or are you doing this all of the time, or how how do you go about using this one? I think you have opened Pandora's box because Uh-oh. security is something that we don't think about until it's too late. So that's a future episode, John. Should we get your architecture friend on the on a future podcast? Oh, you're you mean or my security friend? Sure. Are we talking about the same person? Uh, no, they're, they they actually they could talk to each other. It's entertaining. Oh. Okay. Well, we'll we'll uh, maybe tease something like that up. 
Agile meets security. Ooh. I recently had a recommendation from Rob Yago, or Rob Jago, I forget which, which is the pronunciation, to have Jez Humble on the show to talk about continuous delivery. So I'm, I'm looking in to see if we can maybe get him onto a future episode. So uh, stay tuned for that. Hopefully we'll be able to work that out. My picks for the episode, I have a couple of them. The first one is something called Boomerang, and it's a plugin. I guess it's kind of a plugin is how you would call it for Gmail. And there's two things in life I hate, meetings and email. It's like the bane of, you know, the bane of the professional worker, the knowledge worker's existence. But with Boomerang, it gives you the opportunity to do some scheduling of email stuff and I try to follow the inbox zero approach to keeping my inbox organized and and being productive. And I do some things like using OmniFocus to follow up on on tasks that I have to do, as well as you know the s- typical Scrum board, Kanban board. But I like I also like using Boomerang to help with that because if I get an email. That's from someone that says, you know, um, I need you to get back to me on something in three days. Then I can I can take this email and I can send it off into the future and say, you know, come back to me in two days, and then I can deal with it then rather than having it in my inbox and cluttering up my inbox or taking the time to create like an omni-focus task that says get back to this person in three days. So if you have trouble with... Uh, being organized with your email and you're a Gmail user, check out Boomerang. Uh, My second pick, which I just kind of came up with while we were going through the show is, I mentioned go to the Gemba. And that's something from Lean. Uh, It's all all over the, the Lean books and the Toyota Way book and stuff. So if you're interested in that, just Google go to the Gemba and read everything that comes up. Read the whole internet on Go to the Gemba because I think that there's a lot of stuff there that you could learn, especially all of you application developer managers that are out there listening and all of you uh, tight-ass MBAs out there as well. Not you, Jason. I'm not saying you. Yeah, 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 you did. John, I'm going to get you a speaking engagement at an MBA, at an MBA conference is all I can say. <laughs> What what's gonna happen gonna one of these days, fruit. Jason? Is I'm gonna throw it. <laughs> is that like a like a a, a a group of tough MBAs are gonna like corner me in an alley and beat the crap yeah, out of me one yeah, day? Yeah, but that and the, I think we're also gonna get the architects to show up and the business people that have to manage a budget and goals and all that stuff, you know, because they're all out there, John. So they're gonna try to kill you with charts. <laughs> <laughs> Death by charts. They've tried that before, but I survived, Lee. All right, guys, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. Check out thisagilelife.com for these show notes and all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening and keep living this agile life. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.